Margaret Shuring. I'm an associate professor in the School of Theatre, Performance and Cultural Policy Studies here at Warwick. And it's my great pleasure this evening to introduce and indeed to sit and talk to um, Michael Billington. I'm sure that you all know. Thank you. That rather says it all. I don't need the rest of the introduction, do I? I was going to go on simply to remind you that he's not just a theatre critic from The Guardian of, of well, well over 30 years and still going, but also a, a writer, a broadcaster. He has written a number of books, including a biography of Peggy Ashcroft and a book on Harold Pinter. And he's here today to talk to us, um, really having just published his latest book with Faber and Faber, State of the Nation, British Theatre Since 1945. Michael, shall we just talk for a while? The plan yes. is that we will talk and then we will open um, the discussion to the floor. So perhaps my first question is, why did you write the book? What, what, what inspired this? It's a very good question. Um, I suppose... Firstly, I wanted to try and understand my life, really. Um, as you said, I've been writing about the theatre, I mean, for The Guardian since 1971. So that's 30, how many years? 37 years. I had six years before that on The Times. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's 40 years. My basic working life has been spent reviewing plays. And I see in the introduction to the book, I probably have spent about 8,000 nights sitting in theatres. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to try and see if there was some structure um, in what I'd been uh, watching, whether there was some narrative one could describe about the British theatre. I mean, that was really the starting point, because obviously there are lots of books about post-war British theatre. And I thought, what can I do that is slightly different? Well, A, I can tell it from my point of view. Um, secondly, I can break one of the golden rules of books about post-war British theatre, which almost invariably start in 1956. The opening night of Look Back in Anger at the Royal Court is enshrined in history, isn't it? It is indeed. I've met thousands of people who all claim they were there the opening night of Look Back in Anger at the Royal They can't all have been there. Um, <laughs> I thought I would go back to the um, end of the Second World War, mm -hmm. and that then started me thinking, I would like to write a book about Britain as well as about the theatre. In other words, I'd like to write a book about the story of British theatre over the last 60 years, um, but also see how the theatre had shaped Britain and how Britain had shaped the theatre and whether there was a necessary interaction between the two. Because again, I mean, there are a lot of excellent theatre books on the market, we, we both know this, but a lot of them tend to treat the theatre as a slightly enclosed space, as a slightly sealed off world, and it isn't. And I'm fascinated by politics, and I'm fascinated by current events, current affairs, and so I wanted to see how the theatre reflected the society and whether it did accurately or not. And just to make this a, a longish answer... Um, That's all right. Uh, <laughs> it's you they want to listen to. Well, no, no, I mean, I, 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 I want, uh, you know, obviously to talk, but I mean, it, it is quite interesting how this all started. So I decided to research quite heavily that period from 1945 after the war, the sort of five years immediately after the war when there was a Labour government, because actually I wasn't a theatre critic then, believe it or not. Um, I think I was five years old when the war finished and I hadn't started yet. Mm -hmm. um, so that period was my own um, yeah. childhood. 
And I wanted to go back and see what was going on in that particular period, because I have memories of it. And the more I read, the more I researched, the more fascinated I became, because what struck me was what was happening in the country, i.e. a Labour government with a vision of the new Jerusalem they hoped to build, even if they never did, um, a vision of a new society, a new order in this country, uh, was matched, I thought, by people in the theatre who also, in 1945, wanted to create a new kind of theatre. And I write about them extensively mm-hmm. in the book. People like Joan Littlewood, for example, touring the country with Theatre Workshop and doing plays about um, the atomic bomb. But at the same time, obviously there were those who detested what was going on in Britain after the war. Um, I was fascinated to discover that the medical profession, for example, I mean, viciously denounced the National Health Service when it began, or representatives of the the medical profession, uh, their organized body spoke of this as a step on the road to fascism and so forth, or state socialism. Um, Many people distrusted um, the labor policies of that time, the extensive nationalization. And again, that was replicated in the theater of that time. Many people, I discovered, wanted to take the theater back to where it had been before 1939. Obviously, um, certain dramatists, um, Noel Coward springs instantly to my mind. Um, And the key person who ran the London theater at that time was a manager called Binky Beaumont, who ran a firm called HM Tenants. And he was trying to recreate something like the glamour, the glitter of the 1930s theater. So in, in brief, or not so brief, what you had, it seemed to me, was the battle that was being conducted in politics was actually being conducted on the stage. And that was the clue. And I thought, well, if that was true from 45 to 51, was it also true over the next 50 years? And the more I read and the more I thought about it, the more it struck me that it was true. That the fascinating thing about theatre is that it is not hermetically sealed off from life. It is actually a reflection of what is happening in society. So that's a very, very long answer, but all those threads sort of um, came together to stimulate the book. Right. Um, Early on in your career, Mm -hmm. you yourself were um, a a member of a theatre company um, in Lincoln. Mm -hmm. Did you find that actually being actively involved in theatre coloured the way in which, in your early career, you um, approached theatre criticism? Do you know, I I actually think it did. And I think what it did was perhaps to, um, I wouldn't say castrate me as a theatre critic, that would be too violent a metaphor, wouldn't it? But I think it may have made me less abrasive as a theatre critic. Because, you're quite right, I had two very happy years actually working in Lincoln. I joined Lincoln Theatre Royal uh, as a sort of um, PR, basically. And then I went on and helped to run the company and I ended up directing plays. I began to love the milieu, the atmosphere. I respected the actors. My God, they worked fantastically hard. Actors always work hard, but in a regional theatre that was touring in those days by bus. You know, every other week they'd go by bus at 4.30, having rehearsed all day, to Scunthorpe, to Rotherham, and to Loughborough, because we had ancillary theatres there. And I thought, my God, you know, their days start at 10 o'clock, and then they finish at midnight when they've come back on the coach. And you can imagine what it was like in this kind of yes. time of year. Anyway... So two happy years in Lincoln, and then I um, went into freelance journalism. And I remember an old friend of mine and a well-known figure in British life, who's a fantastic figure in British life, um, Melvin Bragg, saying to me once in the sort of mid-60s, when I was just starting to write reviews and get them published, he said, Michael, he said, 
why don't you write like you used to, you know? And what he meant was that when I was at university, I was obviously writing much more acerbic and sharp-toothed and vicious <laughs> reviews uh, than I was when I became a professional critic. So I suspect those two years I spent in the theatre did have quite an impact, actually, in that they made me respect the work of theatre people, even if I didn't like it, if you see what I mean. Presumably, it worked as a good balance in relation to your course at Oxford, where you'd been looking at uh, literary materials. Yes, I mean, it and did. It balanced yes, the approach. It did, though, I mean, that's another odd saga. I mean, at least I read English. <laughs> Go on. Well, no, I, <laughs> at least no, you read English. I, I, read, I read English to Oxford, but no, I mean, I'll, I'll keep this very short. But I, for the first year ever, I think 1961, on the English syllabus was an optional drama paper. And I thought, oh, I must take this. Um, I was the only student in the whole of university to take this optional drama paper. And the embarrassment was they couldn't find anyone to teach it. This says a lot about <laughs> Oxford in 1961 and possibly today. Um, they, they, my tutor said, well, I, I don't know anything about the theatre. And they found a lovely man called Robert Browning, I swear, at Pembroke College. And I went to see him and he said, he said well, I'm happy to teach you this. He said, I don't know much about the theatre either or history of English drama, but let's do it together. So together we studied the history of English drama. But isn't it strange I was the only person... It, however many people were reading English in that year who to take that paper. But yes, you're quite right. I had studied drama academically up to a point. I'd always been a remorseless theatre-goer, yes. living not far from here, you see, brought Absolutely. up in Leamington Absolutely, brought up Spa. in Leamington and Warwick. So and therefore, Denver. Stratford, obviously, yes. but Coventry, yes. too, uh, a theatre long gone, the Coventry Hippodrome. I remember it. Do you? Yes, I Gosh, do. I, I have... Sorry, that's showing our age, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> I had the fondest <laughs> memories of that theatre. God, the days of Jewel and Morris at the Coventry Hippodrome. Anyway, um, the Sorry. Belgrade was just opening, of yes. course, 1958, I think. Uh, so I saw, the, I saw the Wesker plays at the Belgrade Coventry um, when I was a student. Um, and Birmingham, of course. Birmingham mm. Rep I used to go to endlessly. So I was very lucky. Um, so I studied drama academically, had been a lot to the theatre, mm. and then had this two-year spell, as you say, working in Lincoln. So... One of the interesting things is that perhaps um, a perception of you as a critic is that much of your work is um, in and around London. And in fact, much of your early experience of theatre is indeed of the provinces, mm -hmm. of the establishment of the repertory theatres, the building-based companies, um, way away from the centre. It's true. Um, I mean, now my life is very London-centric, yes. I'm afraid. Yes. Um, that does come over a little in the book. <laughs> I've, so I've been told, yes. No, I, I think I acknowledged it, actually. You did. You actually say so. I say the And you say it would be a different book if you had lived in Edinburgh or in That's Belfast. That's right. <laughs> I say this in the naive hope of disarming criticism. Fat, fat chance, you know. I Sorry. Thought, uh, no, no, not from you. No, no, but I thought I'll get this out of the way so that whatever people attack the book for, they can't say, well, it's not a book about Scotland or whatever. And then I've had some really substantial reviews. I'm very lucky yeah. in the Scottish papers, but they all say the same thing. Nothing Why about does, us. Nothing about us, no. Why does he talk about Scotland? Well, I mean, quite seriously, my working life is dominated by London almost mm. inevitably. I mean, I do try to escape. Mm. I was in Liverpool this week. I should be in Ipswich next week. You know, at least once a week I tried to get away mm. from London. But it gets more difficult for reason, pragmatic reasons. Newspapers um, like, in many cases, to have a, a regional correspondent mm. to save the expense, which is now considerable. I'm sure everyone understands that. Yes. You know, a night at a hotel, rail fare or whatever, you know, comes to mm -hmm. 150, 200 quid if you're not careful. Newspapers don't like that when they can have someone on the spot, you know, who can do it for much less. But I do try to see theatre outside London, and at heart I am a 
a passionate provincial, if that's not a bad word, actually, these days. A passionate regionalist, anyway. That's rather hard anyway. thing, I think. I, I, from the book, too, um, I get the uh, clear sense that you have an interest in the influence, not just of theatre in England, but of companies from Europe and the effect that that, it, that influence of, for example, the Berliner Ensemble mm -hmm. has had on the development of the English theatre. Yes, I mean, that's a crucial bit of the book, I hope. The Berliner yes. Ensemble paid this historic visit in that extraordinary year, was it 1956, <laughs> um, when the Royal, State, the Royal Court English Stage Company began that year, of course. But in August that year, the Berliner Ensemble came for their first ever visit to this country. Um, I never saw them at the Palace Theatre, where Andrew Lloyd Webber now reigns supreme. Um, Ironic, isn't it, really? That, I mean, that, that is now exclusively a musical theatre, and then it was, the, it was where the Berlin Ensemble did their season. But anyway, um, it caused... What did it cause? It caused excitement, argument, and it had enormous influence. And I haven't met ever, ever, a single actor, director, or writer who saw that season who did not take something away from it. And I really suggest in the book it was much more influential than the opening of the Royal Court, actually, because it affected the way people wrote plays. Um, and to this day, uh, John Arden, Edward Bond, will openly acknowledge that. And if you look at the structure of plays post-Berliner Ensemble, it was heavily influenced by, by Brecht. I mean, John Osborne's Luther uh, came shortly afterwards. Mm -hmm. Robert Ball played a, a, wrote a play for the commercial theatre, A Man Four Seasons. It was actually Brechtian in its structure. Um, if not its content. So writing was affected, um, directing palpably. Yes. Um, and certain directors, William Gaskell, John Dexter, immediately became Brechtian-style directors. Mm -hmm. And acting too, I think, perhaps changed a bit less because I think English acting was always uh, somewhat Brechtian in style. Um, but lighting design, all those things were heavily influenced. I think our theatre today bears some of the imprint of that historic visit 50 years ago. It's very interesting, isn't it? Brecht himself has, has gone through various cycles, and I would say now is largely unfashionable in the British theatre, aside perhaps from Mother Courage, uh, Galileo, Caucasian Chalk Circle, that's about it. But the Brechtian influence <laughs> is still perceptible, it seems to me, in design and presentation. Mm. I'm sure you're right. You talk, just coming back to the book for a moment, you talk about the influence that um, Brecht had on Joan Littlewood and about her actually playing Mother Courage as well as directing it on tour. That's right. I mean, that was the first production of Mother Courage in mm. this country in Barnstaple, I think it was, yes. Um, <laughs> so much for London. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, there was a festival. It was a strange story. There was a the Tor and Torridge Festival, it was called set up by a man called Ronald Duncan, who was a poet and dramatist. Um, and anyway, Theatre Workshop was invited to um, put on this show down there, first, ex first sighting of Mother Courage. It was a disaster. I didn't see it, by all accounts. Um, Joan Littlewood herself played Mother Courage. Uh, the actress who was opposed to play it didn't, etc., etc. It was a litany of disaster. But Brecht survived, uh, Mother Courage survived, and... And clearly the importance of Brecht within the circle of people that were influencing the development of British theatre. That's exactly that's right. Really and, what survived. But I think the other thing that's crucial to remember, it's, it's history now, but it's crucial to remember, we have this structure today in British theatre, don't we, with these companies and groups. We have the Royal Shakespeare Company, we have the National Theatre. Why do we have them? It's partly because of the example of the Billionaire Ensemble. 
Because when the, when the Berliner Ensemble came here in 1956, the British theatre was predominantly commercial. Uh, it consisted of West End long runs. Mm -hmm. You ran as long as you could. And then, but here came the Berliner Ensemble showing us what could be achieved by having a permanent team of actors, a resident directorate, a house dramatist. Mm -hmm. And so four years later, Peter Hall sets up the Royal Shakespeare Company, not yeah. solely because of that, but partly but because influenced. of that. And then three years later, Laurence Olivier sets up the National Theatre Company. So without that visit, I think it would have been a long, it would have taken much longer for Britain to have accepted that idea of the company and the company ethos. Mm. It seems to have run alongside the first um, Arts Council subsidy of theatre as well. And yes. I, I do, I particularly realise that today talking about subsidised <laughs> theatre is um, a very serious issue. You will know that um, there's been an announcement of cuts to over 200 arts organisations just today, um, and that these, this includes a number of major theatres. Um, but they've actually, as we know, they've, they've, they've rescued one or they've two. They've rescued about, <laughs> is it 13, I think? It was going to be about 200, wasn't yes. it? It's now whittled well, down to 187 <laughs> companies. Um, but it's, I mean, do we yes. want to talk about that? I mean, that's well, I was only going to think, say that one of the things that comes out very strongly from your book is, and, and perhaps because you're so fascinated by the interrelationship between theatre and society and politics and government, that the... Um, your emphasis um, from time to time is precisely on the extent to which the building-based companies are subsidized, the disastrous effect when sometimes subsidy is, is shrunk, withdrawn, yes. um, and, and the serious effect that has on whether or not a company tours or whether it has to remain building-based. So I just thought you might talk a, for a moment at least about the relationship between funding and the development across the years, not just now. Well, I, I'd put very simply, if British theatre has been transformed in my lifetime, and I think mm. it has, our lifetimes, why? I mean, mm. Subsidy is one yeah. reason. Um, and one, I think one should always remember this and keep saying this, and one should never take this for granted. Um, Nicholas Heitner, the director of the National Theatre, in one of the recent annual reports, had a very simple sentence consisting of two words, and Nicholas Heitner is often a man of two words. Um, he was to critics this year, but anyway... Um, <laughs> The two words in question were subsidy works, which puts it very succinctly mm -hmm. and precisely. And subsidy does work because we all, I mean, I suspect everyone in this room would take this for granted, but there may be people outside this room who would not take this for granted, which is subsidy obviously enables things to happen that would not otherwise have happened. It's the freedom for development, isn't it? It is. And we, we, we tend, I think, to take it for granted. Um, I teach very enlightened and very brilliant American students in um, London, you know, each week, they're Ivy League students, they're a joy to teach. But I was talked to them about this from the beginning, mm. uh, because it is so alien to the American ethos, this idea. Mm. And they always come back to me, we always have a live debate about it, and they always say to me, yes, but if you have subsidy, it doesn't mean the government has some control over the content, or, you know, if there's protests, workers will. I said, no, it doesn't, on the whole. Mm. Um, it may have done in the Soviet Union, but it doesn't here. In other words, we subsidise art, and then the artist is, on the whole, free to use that money to attack government, call for the overthrow of capitalism, or whatever. And I think, I think it is one of the more enlightened features of British life. And I dwell on this in the later stages in the book, that uh, one of the joyous ironies of the Blair period, it seems to me, is that under Blair the Arts Council was given this new tranche of money 
uh, i.e. 25 million extra for the theatre, which of course then enabled the British theatre to turn on Tony Blair and the British and the Labour government and rightly savage it for its policies in Iraq. So you have a piquant situation where the government is enabling uh, the, the wolf dogs to be let out of the kennel, if that's mm. not a rather odd metaphor. Um, that's civilization to me, actually, when the government allows the freedom itself, for challenge. Yes, exactly. Enables itself to be criticized. And although I mean, the history of subsidy has had its ups and downs, obviously, over the last 50 or 60 years, the principle, I think, is, is vital. Where we've got into a mess, as you know, and as you referred, <laughs> is, is to the current situation, yes. which, I mean, most people I know find it unbelievable. And words like insane are frequently used. That The Arts Council, thanks to some very successful lobbying, got more money out of this government for the next three years for funding the arts. And then the Arts Council uses this very moment to decide to sort of bring the axe to a number of companies. Of course, you've got to have change and development, but the choices they made were scandalous. Mm -hmm. I mean, Jatinder Verma losing part of the funding Jatinder Verma for losing fifty percent, I think, of his core mm -hmm. funding for Tara Arts. You know, the prime example of a successful um, touring company doing a specific area of work. Mm -hmm. I think when the, I mean, everyone's gone on about the Bush Theatre in London in a rather metropolitan way. I think the Northcott Exeter was the biggest scandal, because actually, you know, money had been put into the redevelopment of the building by the Arts Council, and then they withdraw the funding. And I'm told reliably that the Northcote Exeter plays to roughly 80% audiences mm -hmm. most of the time. It's a successful regional theatre. But I was told, again, the reason its grant was withdrawn or threatened withdrawn was it played to a white middle-class audience. Well, I don't know Exeter that well, but I would guess a lot of the people in Exeter are white and middle class. So, in other words, you know, it was penalised. Playing to its community. Yeah, exactly. It was penalised for playing for, for, for the local people. Um, that can't but, be said necessarily of Tara Arts. No, it you can't. You have a no. much wider outreach. No, but, I mean, the, as far as one knows, mm. the decision on Tara Arts was based on, mm. you know, one single person's estimation. It, yes. I mean, the system is crazy if it <laughs> allows this scandalous... Mm. Um, situation to develop and the word everyone now uses is peer review which means not that the art should be reviewed by the House of Lords uh, but that artists should be judged by other artists which used to prevail in other words the Arts Council relies on the expertise of uh, fellow practitioners to judge whether a company is worth uh, keeping or not. That's how the system should work and doesn't at the moment. I was going to say it doesn't at the moment the emphasis it, was no, that that's absolutely. what's gone. <laughs> I, I feel very sad about this because, yes. I said to you earlier, I mean, you know, yes. I've grown up with the Arts Council. I've always thought it was a beneficent influence, well. yeah. British Council. You know, one sat on panels, one sat in committee rooms. And now I'm at the stage where I think, do we need the Arts Council? Wouldn't it be better if the government itself funded the arts? Mm. I may be wrong, I'm, I'm not sure, but I think that we've reached a crisis point. Can I just say one other thing briefly about the Arts yes, Council? Okay. I won't go on about this all evening, but it's mm. indicative of a shift, which I talk about in the book, I think at the moment, um, and this is touchy territory, maybe sitting talking about this in a university and talking to someone who is part of theatre studies, <laughs> but I sense in the Arts Council, as it now is, a distrust of narrative theatre and particularly text-based theatre. And I'm told that many people in the Arts Council think the old model of the regional theatre, you know, doing plays by, from the canon, as it were, by living and dead writers, is obsolete. And I swear, 
a senior figure in the Arts Council Drama Department took me out to tea recently and said to me across the tea table, he said, Michael, can I ask you a question? I said, yes. He said, do you think plays are dead? And I said, no, I don't think they are. You know, I think there's life in plays, and I think there's a hunger for plays amongst audiences if they're given the opportunity. What she meant, obviously, was whether theatre had now irrevocably changed and we were into the era of you know, non-textual theatre, mm-hmm. non-narrative theatre, devised physical theatre, whatever, visual theatre, whatever term you want to give it. Now, obviously, the sands are shifting and that area is growing, but the idea this should supplant and replace text theatre strikes me as dotty. I, I mean, words fail me, actually. I just think it's insane. It's good that they coexist. It's good that they coexist, and obviously one influences the other. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. I mean, there, there is a genuine yes. cross fertilization. And watching there? the way in which the more improvisational, um, skills-based companies um, actually have influenced uh, plays in building-based theatres. That's true. It's and really very interesting and, and substantial, significant. And also themselves um, grow into, if that's right word grow into or develop into textual work yes. i mean i was just co- thinking about nushkin and thinking you didn't really write about french theater but the théâtre du soleil had developed very much in that way well take a take a more local example mm, complicité sure. yes uh, indeed. which is a classic example yes. because when i first saw them when many people first did they were a, mm. a wonderfully odd ramshackle group of mime artists basically who yes. all studied at School of Jacques Lecoq in Paris, mm-hmm. and imported those skills, didn't they, to yes, absolutely. us? And I remember season they did at the Almeida, and that was basically their work. And they would take subjects mm-hmm. like you know, a family Christmas and do brilliant improvised comedy around it. And then gradually they became more and more interested in textual work. I mean, they did Winter's Tale, they did Brecht, etc., etc. And now they're moving in another direction, it seems to me, where the work is, is devised... But Simon McBurney himself is very much the author, it seems to me, of the work as it now is. Um, So yes, that's a good example of the relationship between the two. What I'm not saying theatre shouldn't change, I'm just saying to dismiss the whole sort of canon of written drama as as dead seems to me philistine, actually, (laughs) which I think is what the Arts Council has become. Moving on from the, <laughs> trying to find a way to follow this. Yes. Moving on from the um, earlier decade of, uh, it does seem to me to be a decade from 45, 46 through to 55, 56. Mm-hmm. If you had to pick another key period or a, even key moment, key production later than that, but that, what, that, you, yes, that you feel has actually changed the direction of, of theatre or made a really significant contribution. Um, in your critical experience, I mean, mm-hmm. that, that, that you felt, yes, this is really significant. I want to write about this. I want to understand it. Well, there are, yes, that's, that's a good question. I mean, obviously, there are landmark plays mm. that are significant. I did say production. Yes. Sorry? <laughs> I said production. Oh, production. Yes. All right, well, yes. I agree. Yes, I think you've, you've got a point. Go um, no, but there are landmark plays. But the point is, People never quite grasp how significant they are till after they've finished, yeah. it seems to me. I mean, it's rare for a critic. Speak you as, often do. <laughs> no, I don't. You see, this is my point. I, this is a bit of self-flagellation on my part. I think critics historically have missed the big moments in post-war British theatre or not realised at that moment what was happening. Mm. And I mean, the litany is, is familiar now, isn't it? Waiting for Godot, look at the overnight reviews. The birthday party, Harold Pinter, look at the overnight reviews. Sergeant yes. Musgrave's yes, dance, okay. Edward Bonsafe, yes. right up to... 
um, Sarah Kane and blasted yes. in 1995, six. Um, none of us got it. None of us got Sarah Kane or realized what we were being confronted by. We thought we were just being confronted by uh, a, a technicolor parade of violence, a sensation monger. Mm. And it took another two plays at least for people to realize she was a severely moral artist with a very strong vision. Mm. And of course the pain is that um, the realization finally came after her death. Yes. Um, so I think, I mean, there are momentous moments in drama, but critics yes. um, usually re realize too late in the day. But I think that's, in a way, that's inevitable. I think the artist will always be ahead of the critic. Don't you? I mean, I think it, that's I the nature think, of yes. art, it seems yes. to me. Okay. Artists yes. have visions of yes, a world which the critic cannot grasp mm -hmm. at the moment. Mm -hmm just as you know, the Impressionists, it took time yeah. for what they were doing to sink in. You're very generous to Kenneth Tynan in your book when you say that he actually does occasionally grasp something as it happens. Well, he did. You uh, were talking then about the Beckett. Yes, yeah. I mean, Tynan did, and the, the other person. And Irving Wardle. I, I was going to say Harold Hobson, actually, <laughs> who, um, because Harold yeah. Hobson is the only critic in 1958 who, who mm. got the birthday party. The yes. only critic, actually, who understood what Pinter was trying to do. Mm -hmm. and. I mean, I, I envy those critics who actually have seen the moment of history as it happens. It's quite easy to see it in retrospect, but to see it when it happens yes. takes much more intuitive skill, I think. And I think I've probably missed lots of, um, or not understood the first time round, you know, significant plays. Mm -hmm. It's partly perhaps the speed with which you have to respond. I mean, it, it's, uh, yes. I, mean, I remember with great pleasure when you wrote for um, books in which I've been involved that you wrote um, very promptly, always to the word limit, always exactly what I was asking for. Um, but it's, it is that pressure of time that you have to respond the next day or within two days. Usually within one hour, actually. I mean, with, with <laughs> okay, plays. there I was being generous. <laughs> no, no, most, most <laughs> on the train of, on the way back to London. <laughs> most of my life is spent judging plays within an hour of curtain fall, which, yeah. and I think you know that explains some of those rash misjudgments uh, that critics have made down the ages. I mean, I always think of this. Imagine in 1955, one had been a critic, a daily critic, and you were sent to see this play called Waiting for Godot by this man called Samuel Beckett that no one in Britain knew anything about. I mean, what would you have made of it? What would any of us have made of it? We would all have been flummoxed and confused. Um, so that's that. Yes, that is my alibi, if you like, um, for incomprehension. It takes. It's very difficult to assimilate everything an artist is trying to do within that short space of time, and also explain it in print. So that's why critics are often behind the clock, as it were. You, I mean, even allowing for that, and allowing for you saying very generously that you missed um, landmarks along the way. You still haven't really answered my question, oh. which was um, if you had identified them either at that time or, or subsequently, which, which plays and productions would you have picked out, or would you, do you pick out in, in the 60s, 70s? Right. Um, just ch really charting yes. the, the, I mean, your state of the nation point. Yes. You know, the, 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 there are these throughout the different decades that are really significant and change people's well, attitude to performance as well as to the place of theatre in relation to um, society and the community locally was, and at large. Yeah, I mean, I was actually present at one historic event, which I do describe in the book, and I think I did intuitively understand the ground was shifting in Don't ask me life. which. Go on, no, I, I'm going to reveal it quickly. Um, it was 1960. Yes. I was a student mm -hmm. at Oxford. I went up to the Edinburgh Festival and on a Monday night in August, I went to see a late night show at the Lyceum Theatre 
by four guys, two of whom I knew about, Alan Bennett and Dudley Moore, because they were both okay. knocking around Oxford at that time. Yes. Uh, there were two other guys, tall guys from Cambridge I'd never heard of, Jonathan Miller um, and Peter Cook, and they did a show called Beyond the Fringe, obviously. And I was there on that first night. I was there, actually, not like the people who claim to be um, at Historic, <laughs> but I actually was there, sitting right. in the gallery. Um, and I think Everyone knew something had happened because to laugh continuously for two hours is quite difficult, actually. It's quite painful. And the show did make one laugh. Uh, there was sort of incremental laughter. It just went on and on and on and never stopped. There was, and that was un rare then and is now because there was a thing called review in those days, which you know, used to have sketches, but then there'd be a dance routine, wouldn't it? And you know, um, men would come on in leotards and hurl ladies in fishnet tights around the stage, you know, usually wearing black berries or something like that. Um, you know, there were, there were pauses. Yes. There were no pauses in Beyond the Fridge. Mm -hmm. But the point is, and I make this very strongly in the book, I think that was a more influential event than Look Back in Anger, because what happened with Beyond the Fringe was the, 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 um, it, the sketches percolated through British life. Mm. Uh, a, a vinyl record was issued. Uh, young people used to play this obsessively in the way later people would watch Monty Python episodes and so mm -hmm. on. It became the sort of student's Bible. We could all do the jokes and we could all quote the sketches, etc. Um, and then after Beyond the Fringe was successful, Britain, I think, began to change. And I say in the book, what Beyond the Fringe did was license disrespect. After that show, it became permissible and even inevitable to attack or mock prime ministers, um, churchmen, archbishops, soldiers, um, World War II veterans, you know, mm. cultural mandarins. No one was safe from um, youthful abuse. And that, I think, was a, a significant moment in post-war British life. I, for me, it was the turning point. Up to 1960, even through the angry young men period, I think there was still a cautious uh, deference towards authority. After Beyond the Fringe, authority was, was fair game, whatever form it took. Mm -hmm. And I think that show, more than anything probably more than any other thing I write about in the book, uh, helped to transform the culture and the society. So there was a landmark. Indeed. Um, and a beneficent landmark, yes. I think, actually. And later? And later. Um, the 70s. Um, yes, or even the 80s. Go on. Or even the <laughs> 80s. Well, <laughs> you're not to be to the 80s. Well, the 80s, I, I think, is a fascinating decade. Um, I've been much attacked for my view of the 80s. I know. Um, and fair enough, I'd... Uh, inevitably, my thesis about the 80s basically is that, again, Mrs. Thatcher comes into power in 79, and I think she was a revolutionary figure who helped to change the culture, and I think we have still not recovered from her influence. But what happened in the 80s, of course, was the musical became the dominant theatrical form. And I suppose you could say the first night of Cats was a historic event, actually, in British theatre. Um, because what it did was show, A, you could create a concept musical rather than a narrative musical. Secondly, it showed the British, though supposedly rather sort of um, stiff and non-limber British, could actually dance any other nation off its feet. And you could have a show that was built around dance. Mm -hmm. uh, and Cats went on you know, to spawn a whole new genre of musicals and make Lloyd Webber and Trevor Nunn fortunes. But my thesis in the book, briefly, is that this is no accident and that Thatcher and the musical were sort of symbiotic in their relationship. Um, I believe here there was a show, was there not? A, Thatcher the Musical. Thatcher the yeah, Musical, absolutely. that says it all, doesn't it? Um, 
I say in the book, rather cryptically, that the musical was Thatcherism in action, because what the musical did as a form was to usually celebrate individual achievement uh, rather than collective um, identities. Mm-hmm. Uh, it usually ended in a note of uplift. You had to come out of a musical feeling some um, anthemic kind of joy. And thirdly, it made fantastic amounts of money. Uh, and you know, through skillful marketing and entrepreneurship, etc., musicals mm-hmm. could make people, as it has, multimillionaires. Mm-hmm. So the musical seemed to me to embody a lot of the values that Mrs. Thatcher was mm-hmm. endorsing. People keep saying to me, why are you anti-musical? I'm not anti-musical. I'm just saying that in that it's decade... charting a particular moment. Yeah, it, it, the musical supplanted straight drama and every other mm-hmm. form, actually, as what the British theatre did best. Um, and that was what we became identified with. I think things have changed since, but I think that decade was peculiarly um, interesting. Yes. And, and the commercial theatres sat very much against the subsidised... Absolutely. Um, but for a long time, yeah. the drama of opposition you know, was, was pretty silent, actually. If you mm. look through the early 80s, That's the right. David Hares, the Howard Brentons, the Carol Churchills were pretty quiescent. And mm. then in the mid-80s, they begin to get their breath back and absorb Thatcherism, and then start to write plays um, about it and attacking yes. it, The Secret Rapture by David Hare, mm-hmm. Carol Churchill, Serious Money, and so forth. But it took time for the British theatre to recover. My impression is, is that you're very much in favour of David Hare's work. Yes, I am. <laughs> I am, actually, because I feel quite lucky to have sort of coincided with David Hare yes. in the sense, you know, he's been writing during all the period I've been mm-hmm. reviewing. So I've watched him grow from those early plays, which I disliked, like Slag and The Great Exhibition, into someone who does what I suppose I'm writing about in the book. Mm-hmm. In all his plays, he seems to me to try and um, embody or express mm-hmm. or pin down what is happening in the country. Sometimes he gets it right and sometimes he gets it wrong, I suspect, but that's he fair enough. He writes extraordinarily strong roles for his actors. Yes, including, I mean, by the word actor, you include I mean, yes. women. Yes, yeah. I do. I mean, he's rare amongst male heterosexual dramatists, in, mm-hmm. in that his protagonists are nearly always women. Yes. Nearly always the agent of change in a hair play mm-hmm. is a woman, which is, I think is um, in itself uh, remarkable. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, I think he is an astonishing figure. Uh, and if you think about that trilogy he wrote in the early 90s, what became a trilogy, Racing yes. Demon, uh, The Absence of War, Murmuring Judges, um, he was a dramatist taking on a Shakespearean role of trying to pin down Britain in a trilogy. And he said he was inspired, I think, by seeing The Wars of the Roses um, done by the RSC. He thought, if if Shakespeare could do it, why can't we? Absolutely. And a trilogy for the National Theatre as well. And a trilogy for the National Theatre. Rather than the commercial stage. Yeah. But he's still... It's very odd. I mean, his latest play, as you know, has just opened um, at the Royal Court, The Vertical Hour, and it's got some very, very sniffy reviews, which is fair enough. But I, I just think... I think a lot of people haven't quite... Perhaps I haven't mm. grasped what he's at in this play. People say, oh, it's another play about Iraq. It's not another play about Iraq, actually. It's a play about um, the need to reconcile public and private selves. You know, the need mm. to reconcile what you stand for and what you represent and you know, what you do for a living, if you like, with who you are. As a human being, and he said, Shakespeare says, was rather good at that. Shakespeare was good. Think about Richard II. Well, absolutely. Like moment at that. Absolutely yes. right. But yes. I mean, Hare's saying if you if you start to divorce these two things, mm-hmm. and the heroine is a female ac- academic at Yale, if you divorce those two things, then you're in trouble mm. as a human being. Yes. And I mean, 
play is about much more than that. But I think this is a, you know, a, a message worth talking about. But mm. play has been very snootily received. But no, I admire, the other thing I admire about Hare is that he's been writing plays since 1970. He's sort of stuck with theatre yes. as a means of communication, as a civilised means of communication he's with audiences. not turned to film in the way that no. so many directors and, and writers have. No, he's flirted with film um, and has written films. Mm. Um, but he's still a theatre man. Mm. And I think that's pretty good, actually. He believes in the medium. Yes. Thinking about sort of believing in the medium, um, before we open this up, I'm just very curious to see, or to talk to you a little bit about what you see as the, what might be the future direction, the strengths of theatre. I'm very struck by um, the increasing internationalism, interculturalism, the bringing in of international festivals, I and mean, I'm particularly interested in the Japanese theatre and in the work mm -hmm. of Ninagawa. Mm -hmm. You wrote very, very, very sympathetically about Ninagawa's work, particularly The Tempest in mm -hmm. Edinburgh. Um, there does seem to me to be, um, recently, a very significant influx of um, different styles, of different approaches to performance, of different expectations of what theatre can offer. And I know it's not something that you deal with in your book specifically, but it's, it just seems to me that that area, at least, is something one might explore, the intercultural, international links. Yes. I mean, I think that is true, and I think Britain is often regarded as parochial and insular and cut mm -hmm. off from foreign <laughs> influence. I don't think that is true in my I'm lifetime, sure actually. I think there have been a succession of mm. um, directors and companies who have affected us, um, Brecht, Mm -hmm. As I say, it was an obvious one. And I think today... Well, the Berliner Ensemble coming again very recently to the complete works season at Stratford. Yes. With their Richard II. Exactly, I didn't see. But I mean, that Stratford season was very interesting, wasn't yes, it? The, absolutely. Know, the RSC opening the doors to... to Stein and to... to, to yes, to companies from yes. all over the world. Uh, the Barbican runs... In London runs this bite season, yes. as you know. And, you know, if you bring in a show by uh, Robert Wilson, Robert Lepage... Mm -hmm. um, Thomas Ostermeyer, now from Berlin, you, mm. know, you will fill theatres, it seems to me, because audiences are fascinated by what is happening mm. outside. And yes, there is a lot of cross-fertilisation and um, influence from other, other countries. Mm. I just, can I just, though, relate mm. this to what's happening? Please, you, you said, what, I'd like you to, yes. What's the future here? And I was very struck by something that happened last year, and I did write about this very briefly in The Guardian in a roundup of the year, so much of the action and the energy and excitement last year came from writers who were from what we used to euphemistically call the ethnic minorities. In other words, they were black and Asian mm. writers. The best play I saw in Britain last year was a play called Baghdad Wedding by a guy called Hassan Abdul Razak, uh, which was at the Soho Theatre in London, and it was about what its title suggests, but it was also about what it's like to be an Iraqi today torn between going back to your country of origin and facing the consequences, or staying in London or Britain, and the sense of pain and exile that you feel. I mean, it was richer than that, but I thought, here is a play telling me what it's like mm. to be an Iraqi in 2007, in a way that no newspaper article or magazine mm. article actually had. This guy can really write. But that was just one example. Um, Kwame Kweimar, as you know, has written a trilogy in effect, for the National Theatre, doing yes. what David yes. Hare did. Uh, and even if the third play wasn't his best, it was still a fascinating play about the tensions between um, Caribbean, people of Caribbean and African origin. And it destroyed 
the bogus myth of the black community. It says there is no mm. black community. There's a state <laughs> of fractious yes. tension between different groups. Roy Williams, who is prolific, um, there's a Roy Williams play, three plays a year, and I'm going to see another one on Monday in Ipswich. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people here saw Days of Significance, which he wrote for the RSC last year, which was about a group of guys about to go to rug. My point is that um, the dominance of what you might call the um, sort of white Oxbridge generation, you know, the Isn't Hares, really the there. Churchills, etc., which has dominated a lot of my life and dominates mm -hmm. a lot of my book, Yes. I think that dominance is now, thankfully, beginning to change. It's not that I want them, I don't want Hare and Carol Churchill and the rest of them to go away, but one wants writers to, to represent the kind of society in which we live. I think we've got a long, long, long way to go and a long way to catch up. But last year to me was quite exciting for that reason. I thought on British stages you could see um, some reflection of, you know, again, mm. the life outside. And I just hope and pray this continues. This podcast was recorded at Warwick Arts Centre, part of the University of Warwick. For more information about the Writers at Warwick programme, including future readings and events, please visit www.warwickartscentre.co.uk. The Writers at Warwick podcast was produced by Tom Abbott. The music was written and performed by Dylan Owen. Thank you.